Ho, 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 Merry Christmas. Welcome to Emergency Care in Scotland Christmas Special with myself, Santa Claus, and my good friend Stuart Ramsay, a paramedic from Glasgow East Station, who is going to have a chat with Josh W. Williams, a winch paramedic working on Rescue 151 in Inverness. Enjoy. This is Emergency Care in Scotland. My name is Stuart Ramsey. I'm a paramedic working out of Glasgow East Station, and I'm here with Josh Williams, who is a winch paramedic with the Coast Guard. Yeah, hi, Stuart. Yep. So, um, so I've been uh, working as a winch paramedic since uh, 2009. Prior to that, I was on the with the Scottish Ambulance Service full time, um, and I'm currently working out of Inverness on Rescue 151 as a, as you said, as a winch paramedic. Yes, so we met when I was a student technician in Inverness and you were doing an overtime shift to try and keep yourself clinical. So where did you work when you were working for SAS and how long were you there for? And what were you doing before SAS, actually? So um, I suppose when I left school, turning the clock right back, when I left school I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do. So for about probably the best part of 10 years. I um, I did various different jobs, travelled a bit around the world, a bit of backpacking and stuff. Uh, and then in 1999, I did a diploma in outdoor ed. Um, I met my partner there, Jenny, and, and then I worked in outdoor ed in Scotland near Fort William, Lockheel, as an outdoor pursuits instructor. Um, and after about three or four years, I got fed up with the rain and um, working outdoors. So I, I joined the ambulance service, starting in Peterhead um, as an ambulance technician. And after a couple of years, managed to progress to sort of paramedic. Um, and then in 2006, working with the Scottish Ambulance Service, I was working at Ellen Ambulance Station and working on the air ambulance on the King Air. We used to do two months rotation. So we do two months on the aircraft and then two months on the road um, back at Ellen. Um, and that was that fitted quite well. And then in 2009, I got offered a position with Bond Jigsaw, um, which is a private entity in terms of uh, BP, paid for uh, oil and gas search and rescue and working in the North Sea. So I started doing that in 2009. Um, and that took me through to 2011 when I joined um, CHC that was running the contract for the Coast Guard helicopter working out of Sumber in Shetland. And so I joined um, Oscar Charlie, as it's affectionately known, the aircraft in, in Shetland uh, as a winch paramedic. Um, and then in 2015, when Inverness opened, I managed to transfer down to Inverness and I currently live near Inverness and work out of Inverness. We've got quite a similar background, to be honest. So I was a lifeguard from when I left school and I worked abroad at summer camps and basically ended I was working in Stornoway as an outdoor instructor as well, but only for a couple of months at a time. Whenever I'd find a job abroad, I would go and then come back. Then I just got fed up of there's only so long you can sit on a beach for, and I ended up working for the ambulance service in Banff, not far away oh, from yeah. Peter. Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that, yeah. And then got transferred to Inverness, and then from Inverness I came down to Glasgow to start my paramedic training. I do remember that doing that shift with actually, because I think did we get a transfer down to Glasgow? Yeah, we had a. It was we'd ended up not doing a lot of work because the back was full, and we just shared the driving and went for a spin basically. Yeah. And you were gutted because you, you, wanted, you wanted to see. Some. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's good to shift though. But I think because of that, we kind of chatted a lot and kind of struck up a bit of a relationship, a bit of a friendship, didn't we? Relationship, a bit of a friendship. Yeah. So if we're talking about search and rescue, so who pays for it? How does how is it paid for in Britain? Uh, so up until two thousand and fifteen, there were only four bases that were paid for by directly from the Department for Transport. Um, and the Department for Transport pay the bills, but the Maritime Coast Guard Agency, the MCA, they manage the contract um, on behalf of the DFT, Department for Transport, and that's all from that's all UK wide. 
And then in 2015, there was a big shift where all um, the whole structure of search and rescue around the whole of the UK was changed from military, predominantly military-led, uh, to absolutely no military involvement at all. Um, okay, so who pays for search and rescue? How does it work? Yeah, so the Department for Transport pays the uh, the company that's won the contract to deliver search and rescue. Um, the company that I work for is Bristow. Bristow Helicopters uh, run the 10 bases around the UK, um, and that's delivering 24-7 uh, all-weather search and rescue. And am I right in thinking that it's an international thing, all countries pulling together and put money in a big pot, or is that something else? No, so there is a convention uh, which means that all westernised countries have to be able to provide a search and rescue cover um, in terms of maritime. So that's 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 global. But in terms of who funds it, it's absolutely not together. It's the, the UK taxpayer pays for the British search and rescue. Uh, and the, like Southern Ireland, for instance, uh, at the moment, they've got four search and rescue bases and that's paid for by the Irish government. OK, so we're paying for it. Oh, totally. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, UK taxpayer, 100%. And how much of an overlap is there between your SAS? So I understand I'm from Stornoway and um, I used to work in Inverness. So every now and then we would end up helping with a transfer from Coast Guard helicopter. And that's usually because the ambulance services aircraft can't handle bad weather. And I think, am I right in saying that now if you have someone having an MI, say, on Lewis or um, Orkney, then depending on the weather, the Coast Guard might be the ones that are just going to transfer that patient straight away if they're available? Uh, yes and no. Um, I think it's a bit of a misnomer that it's just always down to weather. Um, so it might be down to other factors as well. For instance, um, there is only two fixed wing and two rotary aircraft in Scotland for that the, that the Scottish taxpayer is paying for. Um, and if they're busy and then there's a time critical job, for instance, like your MI, um, it, it's still very dependent on the clinical um, analysis of that patient as to whether they need to get rushed to a cath lab or whether they're going to thrombolise stabilize and then uh, wait for transfer by perhaps fixed wing um mm -hmm. but yeah we, we certainly are part of the picture but we, we're not a, it's I, I'm, I don't work in ambulance control so sometimes we're primary as in we're the only asset available um but it's the ambulance service don't scramble us directly they have to go through uk rescue which is our controlling body and they're based down on the south coast of england and they then ring us up and, and as the tasking authority will give us that job. Okay. So you're there if we need you, basically. And sometimes you'll be the best resource or the only resource available. And that's when they'll get utilised. Yeah, very much so. And I think hostile environments where, you know, we can winch, to, even if it's a case of taking somebody from perhaps somebody who's had a tumble on the beach, um, and maybe a suspected broken leg or pelvis or, you know, neck of femur, something along those lines. Um, it might be a case that they're really stable, but they're a really difficult um, stretcher extraction. Um, so, yeah, utilising the search and rescue helicopter in those instances, even when there's a paramedic team on, on scene, um, it might be a case of we're just taking that person from the hostile environment uh, and delivering them to the ambulance service who are on scene. Okay. So let's talk about... Um, so who do we exactly have on the helicopter and how so, does the shift work? Yep, yeah, so we do, so we work as a team of four that fly the helicopter. So you've got a, a commander who's the um, pilot that sits in the right-hand seat, so that's closest to the winch um, or the starboard side. And then on the left-hand side, the, the uh, co-pilot um, is sat. You could potentially have two equally qualified captains sitting in the helicopter 
Um, it doesn't always necessarily fit that the, the two pilots are one junior, one senior. It could be two senior. Um, but the, when you're sitting in the left-hand side, you assume the duties of being the co-pilot and the commander of the aircraft has ultimate responsibility of what goes on in the aircraft. However, uh, the commander takes inputs from all parties in the aircraft. So in the back of the aircraft, we, we commonly call it the rear crew, or is it the, the correct terminology nowadays is the tech crew, so the technical crew. And the technical crew consists of a winch operator and a winch paramedic. Um, and my role is as, as, as a winch paramedic. Now, when the door is shut, and we're perhaps doing searches or we're landing in confined areas, um, then we have an equal responsibility, 50-50 split, and we constantly take it in turns to do different roles within the airframe. Um, a big part of our job is making sure that, you know, we aviate, uh, navigate, and then we arrive on scene, and then perhaps we can start uh, medical interventions. But we, we have a big part to play in making sure that the aircraft is safe um, and we can use like the camera systems on board, the moving map dis display systems, uh, the tracker light, you know, the big floodlight that we can use. Um, so we, we, we've got an in, intrinsically, as a team of people, we intrinsically rely on each other to keep the aircraft safe. Yeah, when you and I were speaking about this role before, you'd said to me that you're an aviator first and then you're a paramedic second. And I never really thought I kind of assumed you would be a paramedic looking out for your patient and just thinking about that while the rest of the team are concentrating on the aircraft and what's going on. But it doesn't sound like that's the case. Yeah, it most definitely isn't. I think that that's probably a big step change between perhaps Helimed and uh, search and rescue aircraft. Um, Although having said that, Helimed is a single pilot operation and I'm, I'm well aware that the, the, the medical team that are on board the aircraft have a big part to play in making sure that helicopter stays safe. So they'll be looking at maps, doing checks for the pilot, those sorts of things. Um, but I think because we, you know, as you alluded to earlier on, we do fly in quite hostile conditions and hostile weather. Um, and when it's really... Uh, poor visibility, um, perhaps strong winds, snow showers, all that kind of stuff, then all four of us in the aircraft have a big responsibility to make sure that we're looking out for the aircraft and each other. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're not going to be much use to anybody if something happens, someone's missed something. Yeah, I, I suppose what I haven't alluded to, and I, I, maybe this is a clearer point, as well, it, it, although power medicine, you know, power medicine is absolutely a practical application of your clinical understanding, your clinical knowledge, and you know the clinical framework that we work in. Um, but actually, as a paramedic, from the moment the phone goes and you get tasked a job, um, you're making a paramedic assessment from the absolute outset. Um, and maybe if I can paint that a little bit clearer. If the weather's a beautiful sunny day and it's the daylight hours and somebody's perhaps on top of Ben McDewey in the Cairngorms and they've fallen over um, and they think they've broken their lower leg, um, then absolutely we're going to be on scene there within 15 minutes, maybe 20 minutes, and landing the helicopter probably fairly close to them. Um, and, you know, that's quite a straightforward job. If we then put that into the middle of winter, nighttime hours with snow showers coming through uh, the same situation exactly the same location Ben McDewey lower leg injury we've now got a whole range of different other factors to consider um, because they are in a hostile environment and it's atrocious weather um, so we now start needing to build in okay well let's do a risk assessment based on what we know the information we know and then that allows us to respond accordingly so in other words we won't necessarily get the helicopter close to that casualty, but we'll be able to understand the extremes of weather, hypothermia, exposure, um, and whether we can get a mountain rescue team working with us that are then able to uh, access that patient, stabilise them pain-free, you know, uh, stabilise the limb, 
and then perhaps do a stretch extraction to a location that we can get them from that you know that that kind of thing goes on so although i haven't actually seen the casualty i've used my paramedic knowledge um as best as possibly can in that situation does that make sense yeah absolutely um i was i've recently done a podcast on staff welfare and it was with a consultant from the royal and a and we were talking about um the differences and one of the main ones is as a paramedic is just the absolute unknown situation that you're going into even if it does say on the screen 84 year old woman fell down two stairs it doesn't mention her neighbor that's a drug dealer who's who's having a huge party or her dog that's trying to bite you and uh I think just drawing on experience, when you see something on the screen, there's there's tends to be, you start thinking, right, yeah, that could be that, or this could have happened, and you start becoming quite cynical about thing, where things could maybe go wrong here or where there's probably not truth happening. But I think that's just down to experience. And But then it's the same thing, really. You're thinking about what you, in the past, have come across as a problem. And I think... As I've my career's progressed, and you see things deteriorate, or you get into situations that shouldn't really be dangerous, or maybe aren't dangerous but have the potential to become dangerous, you draw on your experience and you think, well, "I'm not going to let that happen again," or "This happened last time." And ninety-nine times out of a hundred, the the deterioration or the the situation that you faced the last time isn't anywhere near, isn't going to come, isn't going to come to fruition because it's just been random. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally get that, Stuart. I think it's fighting against your pre preconceived uh, perception of what you're dealing with. And it's, it's about asking those pertinent, relevant questions, but also using every single piece of information you've got, you know, visually, as well as um, approaching the scene really carefully. Um, I, I think if I, the loss, you know, we, we work on the basis of life or limb, um, and it's, it's similar to the ambulance service. So we look at life at risk in terms of life or limb. Um, and so often if somebody's badly broken their leg, um, you know, has anybody in that chain of information that's come our way, has anybody asked if they've got altered sensation or lack of circulation? And sometimes that question hasn't been asked um, and that immediately changes you know, it immediately changes perhaps the response that we we can um, we can develop if, if that, yeah. Yeah, so we're both using skills as paramedics. Your yep. situations are going to be generally a bit more extreme than mine sometimes. Um, if we could just try and think about the skills that we have to utilise before we even get onto clinical decisions or how we're going to care for our patients. Yeah. It's transferable skills. That's, I mean, there's, there's so many transferable skills from being a paramedic on the road to being a paramedic in a search and rescue helicopter. It's, you know, we've, we've recruited loads in the last couple of years. Did you know that? You did, didn't you? you yeah. Um, so we're on, I think we're on to, I think this is our third course of cadets and there's four cadets at each point. And all of the cadets that, that Bristol have recruited are, are, paramedics from the road or helimed paramedics mm -hmm. so then what kind of skills do you think you need as a paramedic out with clinical skills um there's a big so there's, there's definitely a physical part of the job um, you know, you are potentially rescuing people and ex extracting them from situations on your own. Um, so if you're doing perhaps a, a deep water rescue or even a surf rescue, um, then there are certain physical properties that the winchman needs to have just in order to get hold of that person uh, and to put them into rescue drops. Um, I think because we're in a helicopter that's running out of fuel, we've got quite a time constraint. Um, and sometimes you might arrive on scene uh, and you might have maybe 10, maybe 15 minutes before the helicopter is going to have to depart to get some fuel. Um, so when you arrive on scene occasionally, um, you have to then make a very quick assessment and judgment 
of are you going to stay and play, which means that you might well be on scene for maybe 30, 40, 50 minutes while the helicopter goes away, gets some fuel, and then comes back for you and the patient? Or can you get all your ducks in one row and uh, get the casualty in the back of the helicopter by winch or by landing the helicopter on in the time frame that we've got in terms of fuel? Um, mm -hmm. And there's another aspect to all of that as well, is that when you start looking at major trauma centres within Scotland, MTCs, um, I think road paramedics, generally speaking, um, will have that set in their mind. So you're, you, I mean, I haven't worked in Glasgow, so I don't know. So I'd be really interested in, in knowing how this works. But if somebody ticks the MTC major trauma centre uh, triage, um, presumably you just go straight to QE with those. Yeah, so that's what's been quite difficult for a lot of, I wouldn't say people to understand, but it kind of goes against everything when you know you've got someone who's exceptionally unwell. Say there's quite a lot of knife crime in Glasgow and uh, recently I was working on the car by myself and I got sent to a guy who had been attacked with baseball bats and had been stabbed. And his injuries, he had a chest wound and but all of his obs were fine and he looked okay. And I was just thinking he's either going to deteriorate very quickly without warning or he's going to be absolutely fine. And I think because of that, I was very close to the Royal and I was wanting to take him to the Royal because it was the nearest place and I knew he would be looked after just as well. But at the same time, it's not the right place because it's not the major trauma centre and they've got everything in place for that. But then secondary to that, the Queen Elizabeth's probably one of the busiest or fullest hospitals in Scotland. So I just wonder sometimes if you phoned them and you said, well, maybe this person isn't all that bad. I'm very close to the Royal and they were exceptionally busy, which sometimes they are. And I don't just mean busy. I mean, struggling for beds and maybe the Royal would be the best person for them. Um, yeah. So that's, what we have to do is take them past the hospital that you know has got world-class care available in it to the next hospital, which is another 15 minutes, 20 minutes away. Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of the search and rescue helicopter and, the, and how we work as a team, um, if we've got a tasking from Inverness, maybe to Glencoe, somewhere like that, um, Glencoe has got the nearest available hospital as being the Belford, which is in Fort William. Um, and, Flight time from Inverness down to Denclaw is probably about 40 minutes, something around that region, maybe 30 minutes, depending on the weather. Um, once we've arrived on scene and, and recovered the casualty. Now, generally speaking, people in Glencoe who uh, are needing mountain rescue or uh, search and rescue helicopter, and probably both, um, have high mechanism of trauma. You know, they've probably fallen a significant amount of uh, distance and they probably have, they might even have polytrauma. Uh, reduced level of consciousness so they tick all of those boxes for an mtc now the major trauma center is glasgow for us from um uh, from glencoe that would be the nearest available and flight times probably about 40 minutes 30 40 minutes from glencoe down to glasgow landing on the and landing on the rooftop um yeah however if we were to go to the belford which is kind of backtracking our way into fort william um, we've got probably a consultant-led A&E there, which is excellent at stabilising casualties. However, more than likely, if someone is suffering from polytrauma, they will get an onward transfer to uh, Aberdeen or Glasgow, maybe up to Rakem or up to Inverness, maybe, um, depending on all sorts of different factors, I guess. So we, as a paramedic on scene in those situations, we've got to work out what's the best path for this casualty. And I haven't even talked about ambulance transfers so if we're if we're taking a patient from glencoe back to the belford in fort william we're then doing a secondary transfer using the road ambulance in fort william who's then transferring a casualty from our landing site to the hospital which can take anything from 10 to 20 minutes so yeah. when you build in all of those time factors you know if somebody is hemodynamically stable and maintaining their own airway uh, then actually Heading down to Glasgow is probably the best option for those. Uh, you know, it's a one-stop shop. Um, the interventions that they've got available to them for casualties that have significant trauma, and they might well be compensating. You know, we, you were just talking about that with your stab patient. Is is somebody hiding something more sinister? And I think from 
from being on the hillside in Glencoe in horrible weather, I couldn't tell you whether they have or haven't. But what I can tell you is they've fallen 20 feet. Yeah, so they're at high risk of having something. And these trauma centres, they're getting, they've got extra training, extra money. It's the right place for these patients to be, even if at the time it might not seem the most sensible place to take them. Well, it's a, it's a really interesting point that you make there because it, it, when you're on the road, you're actually driving past a really good, really amazing uh, hospital to get to an MTC. Uh, you know, I always think to myself, that's is kind of flying in the face of what we've done for years. Yeah, and as a paramedic, so the odds are if I'm going there, I might I might have EMRS or the trauma team helping me at which point that decision kind of is out of my hands. But I don't really need to make any decisions because I've got an advanced paramedic and I've got any consultant with me who is going to do any of the interventions that are needed. Any of the interventions in the hospital are pretty much going to be able to be done in the ambulance if needed. So I'd quite happily spin around all day with them in the back of my patient because I'm not doing anything. But if it's me by myself and they're not available and I've got it's me and another paramedic and you're driving, like you're saying, you're driving past this hospital and it's people that you know, like your mates, consultants and people that you regularly give unwell people to and you're going past them. And just I, I've always when you do kind of know where you are, you think, right, that's me. I've gone past them now. If something goes wrong here, I do I carry on or do I go back and basically you should really be carrying on because if something's gone wrong it's because of the issues that you've that you're skipping that that a and e to go to the major trauma center yeah sure, I, I totally get that i mean it's it's, it's a fascinating you, you only know you've got it right post job mm-hmm. yeah we only we yeah. only we only really know whether we've got it absolutely spot on by the time we've delivered that casualty to a major trauma centre, and then we get some feedback. Um, I think I, I didn't, I didn't sort of um, encapsulate what else we do. So, so if we're heading down towards Glencoe and we've got a polytrauma patient that we're going to, um, I'd be asking the pilots. Um, I'd asking be asking them all sorts of different options, pathways for me in terms of how much fuel I've got on scene, how long it's going to take to fly down to Glasgow, how long it's going to take to fly to Aberdeen, and how long is it going to take to fly back to the Belford. Um, so I've got all of that in my back pocket. It's all sort of tertiary paramedic knowledge that we need to have in order to build that sort of correct clinical uh, picture um, as to what's best for the casualty. On top of that, occasionally we get casualties that are very definite about where they want to go. Um, and, you know, as you well know, the patient is often the, the centre of our um, decision making. And if they're adamant that they you know, don't want to go to hospital and they just want to be dropped back at the car park, um, then it's very difficult to, you know, we can, we can absolutely advise what we think is best for that casualty, but actually autonomously, they, they are absolutely, ha- you know, well within their rights to make those decisions. So. Yeah. Yeah. But we've got the, the major trauma triage, the major trauma triage tool, which does kind of make it a bit easier for us so we use that. Um, you use it. Yeah, we use exactly yeah. the same Scottish Ambulance Service Major Trauma Tool. Yeah. But there's nothing about helicopter flight times in it. N- no, but it still <laughs> talks about the sort of 45 minutes, doesn't it? And really, that's yeah. kind of where that's kind of what we use all the time, really. But we also, if we turn up an RTC, a multiple casualty RTC on the A9 or you know somewhere similar um, we need to know that you guys on the road we need to know what you're thinking uh, because now we've we've changed the bandwidth in terms of where these casualties are going to go so we don't have to then suddenly send three casualties to Raidmore, all of whom are polytrauma you know we've got a helicopter and we're able to perhaps divvy up where we're taking casualties um but yeah it's it comes down to communication i think those multiple casualties jobs you know where we've got somebody who's who've got that knowledge base understanding and then they can liaise with us scotland's a very interesting country when it comes to weather you know you can have absolutely stunning weather on the west coast and you know absolutely not stunning weather around aberdeen um and vice versa you know so it, 
it's not one picture fits all. We we need to have, when we brief at thirteen hundred after our, on our twelve hour twenty four hour shift, uh, we quite often uh, look at weathers, or we look at the weather as a big part of what we're going to do over the twenty four hours. Yeah, yeah, it must dictate almost everything you do, or the like you were saying when you first get the call, uh, the weather must be the first thing you look at. It's, it's definitely up there, yeah, for sure. It's uh, location, fuel, weather. That's the big three, really. So, yeah, yeah. There's lots of be- there's lots of bends in Scotland, so we want to make sure we're going to the correct bend. <laughs> Do the bends have postcodes? <laughs> well, I think they. I think I think there's two, maybe three, Ben Moors. So yeah, we you know there's a Ben Moore on Mull, and then there's a Ben Moore up north. Famously, a few years ago, there was a search and rescue helicopter searching with somebody on Ben Moore on Mull, and uh, they oh, were really? they were on the phone saying, "Can you not hear the helicopter?" Nope. Ah. <laughs> so if we think about all the decisions that are having to be made, there's four of you in the helicopter everyone's going to have their own opinion on what's best for, well, I suppose number one is to keep the aircraft functional and in the air. And then number two is going to be what's best for the patient. And then number three is maybe what's going to be, I mean, I know what's best for most of my patients, but it's not always feasible. So it's not a meet in the middle where you can have a compromise between the aircraft and what's best for the crew and what's best that are needed for the patient. So there's going to be a lot of human factors involved. And I remember reading something about Asian airlines, their biggest, they had the biggest crash rate back in the 80s or 90s. Um, And it was basically because the co-pilot had too much respect for the pilot. I think they had to bow to them at the beginning of a shift. And then when they started getting things wrong, the co-pilot didn't... um, didn't correct them and it sounds to me as if i mean if you've got two operators that are basically qualified the same but one's doing the co-pilot's um the co-pilot's job and the other is the commander it sounds like there's already a bit of understanding there yeah well i couldn't agree with you more in terms of you know it's a really good observation now crm crew resource management which is a tool that we use is to understand how we uh, how we interchange ideas and how healthy it is that people question each other, um, and it's amazing how you can become very task focused uh, in a search and rescue helicopter, and just pushing that away and being able to question things um, in a really structured manner sometimes allows a much simpler way to solve a problem, um, and. The commander of the aircraft, although has signed for the aircraft and is ultimately responsible for what goes on in that aircraft, there's lots and lots of things that go on where the commander would never necessarily tell me how to be a paramedic or how to be a winch operator, um, but would absolutely be in their rights to question my decision making. And I accept that as absolutely part of my job. So I need to justify and explain to them why I've made the decision I've made. Um, And, you know, we really embrace the idea of being able to question one another. Yeah, I think that's one of the best things about working with students Um, because you'll tell them something and they'll ask why. And then sometimes you get caught out and just think, well, it's good we've always done it, but why am I actually doing it? What are we actually doing? Yeah. Um, I seem to remember you saying something like everyone has a voice and everyone deserves to be listened to. Mm-hmm. And I was listening to another podcast before talking to you and someone said, we've got two ears on one mouth for a reason. And that's because we should be listening more than we're talking. And I've been in situations not even necessarily life-threatening or in hostile environments where you've had people who are task-orientated. And it's remarkable when you see it. They just want to do that one thing, if it's cannulating or if they want to do something else. 
And before you know it, they've just missed the bigger picture. There's a crane with a brick, a big bag of bricks hovering over their head and they don't see it. Yeah, I, it, I mean, that's, that's most definitely... I mean, your eyes and ears in a helicopter, once you're out of the helicopter on the side of a mountainside, um, we use what's called polycon. So I've got a communication with the aircraft. And quite often I will hear the uh, the crew in the aircraft, you know, the, either the pilot or the winch operator, just mention a little golden nugget to me and I've forgotten about something. Or perhaps my bag is in a position where the downwash of the aircraft means the bag's suddenly going to roll down the hillside. Um, you know, so they're looking they're looking out for me all the time. Um, you know, it's, it's so dynamic. That environment that you're working is so utterly dynamic. You've got to be super careful about what you're doing and how you're doing it. Um, putting patients in stretches on a hillside, all of a sudden you're creating a toboggan uh, or the potential of the downwash of the aircraft to flip the stretcher. So as soon as I've done that and, and somebody is strapped in with their arms in, uh, they're not going to be able to, to, to right themselves or defend themselves. So immediately when I've done that, I've always detailed somebody to, to look after that casualty and stretcher and they don't take their hands off the stretcher. You know, so so I always make sure that I've got uh, ideally somebody from mountain rescue, because um, the downwash downwash of these aircraft it's it's um, it can change a simple rescue into unbelievably hard work within seconds, um, simply by the amount of downforce and the, and the air um, the air displacement that the helicopter creates. So if we could just talk about, so right now NHS is under incredible stress and I've been in situations where I've not had my rest period. There's waiting times outside hospitals, sometimes plus of six hours. Um, how do you manage fatigue working in a helicopter? It's with us, it's, I mean, I'm sure it's roughly the same, but I'd have to decide if I'm too tired to work safely. And I think a lot of my colleagues, you're quite reluctant to do it because you probably, it's a lot easier for me now that I work in Glasgow because I'm usually about 10 minutes away from hospital. When I used to work in Inverness, when I used to work in Banff, sorry, it was an hour and 10 minutes to Aberdeen. And that means you have an hour and 10 minutes to drive back to the station before you can finish your shift. Inverness was a really great station to work at, but there was always a risk of a transfer from Regmore to either Aberdeen or Glasgow or Edinburgh, which would add, depending on what time your shift started, you would have, say, four and a half hours to drive there, an hour to give the patient to the hospital, and then four and a half hours to drive back. And you'd have to decide, am I too tired to do this, or do I need to get a hotel for the night and then drive back in the morning? Or should someone in the ambulance service be driving me and my crewmate home? Uh, so in Glasgow, it's a bit easier because I've only got a 10-minute drive to think about at the end of my shift. How does uh, fatigue work in the aircraft? How, how do your shifts work throughout the month? So uh, it's a randomised roster. Uh, so it's not like we do Monday, Tuesday, Saturday, Sunday. Um, what we do is we try to – we've got lots of additional training that goes on out with um, working the shifts. But the shifts are 24 hours. Uh, and we start at 1300 and finish at 1300. Um, although sometimes we can extend beyond 1300. So perhaps the job phone might go at half past 11. And it's not um, it's not unusual to be extended to maybe two, three, maybe even four o'clock in the afternoon, um, where you can then ideally get back to base, hand the helicopter over to the oncoming crew and um, then out and go home. Fatigue is a really interesting issue, and it's something that Bristow as a company have, and, and the CAA have highlighted, and we've had specific training on. Um, every single person has complete autonomy to be able to put their hand up and say, I'm fatigued. You know, that's, that's something that, in terms of the aviation world, um, is very much at the forefront of safety. Um, and and you're, you're applauded for doing that as opposed to thought ill of. So as an organisation, they've very much driven it to the point of, if you are fatigued, you need to put your hand up and say so. Yeah. However, sorry, go on. Um, no, I was going to say, so I think I've mentioned this book 
in the last three podcasts I've done, but it is called Why We Sleep by Dr. Matthew Walker. And it's a sleep professor who's studied sleep for the last 15 years. And a lot of it has to do with the most interesting chapters in it. Um, talk about how being sleep deprived is worse than being drunk mm-hmm. when it comes to, mm-hmm. to driving. Mm-hmm. And if not worse. So I, th- I think, I mean, that's a really interesting, I mean, we're, we're effectively operating a helicopter close to mountainsides and along with other, uh, uh, you know, aircraft in the skies. And there's lots of processes that we need to go through to make sure that we are flying the aircraft safely. Um, so, yeah, fatigue is a big issue. I think that the difficult part of that is feeling slightly under aroused for the job Um and then when the job really means something, so there's life at risk, then you're able to bring yourself up to meet that. You know, it's like an arousal state, yeah. if you like. Um, and so sometimes, I mean, we're quite, fortunate, we're quite fortunate in terms of how we operate as a company. We've got beds. Everybody's got their own bedroom at work. So by 10 o'clock in the evening, most people are going to bed um, and we can sleep right through to 8 o'clock in the morning. Or, or be ready at eight o'clock in the morning. So normally we're getting up about seven, half past seven in the morning. So you get some pretty yeah. good sleep. However, if you've been out, if you've been out during the night or you've had a late job, uh, we still get sort of ten hours rest, so we can have a sleep in. Um, but during the sleep in, we are generally still on uh, life at risk jobs. So if something comes in that's life at risk, we'll get scrambled yeah. and off we go. Um, so yeah, it's. I mean, it's a difficult one. I think you you have to be very mindful of others when you're when you're working hard um, and you also have to be very honest with yourself as well so if you do get yourself in a situation where you're feeling um, you know fatigued you need to stick your hand up and talk about it with your colleagues because you might find that the other three people in you're working with are all feeling exactly the same and then we all have a, a consensus where we decide actually we need a couple of hours rest here uh, before we're able to do anything else and I take it when you're talking about extending it all depends on what's happened previously in the shift. So if you've done nothing for the whole day and a job comes in at 12.30 or 11, everyone's going to be quite happy to take part in that. Well, yes and no. I mean, yes, 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 in terms of um, it, it doesn't really dictate what you've done in the previous part of the shift, no. So you could have been busy all shift and then get a job at half 11 and you'd continue on. It's very much those um, extended periods are very much at the commander's discretion. So we, we have to fi- file a discretionary report with the CAA to say that we've extended beyond one o'clock and these are the reasons why. And then, um, as, but it's seen as that. I suppose sorry, that if, even if you have been doing nothing all day, you're still going to be tired and at risk of fatigue purely because you've been on shift absolutely yeah i mean that's the thing isn't it if if you if you if you if you've been at work for 24 hours you've been at work for 24 hours there's there's no getting away from that and you've always you've always got things to do uh you know it's not like we're sitting around doing absolutely nothing for 24 hours you know far from it there's lots of additional duties and training uh, meetings online training um, skills that you need to practice. You know, there's lots of things that we have to do in terms of currencies uh, and making sure that when the bell goes, then we're kind of ready for what's coming our way. Finally, do you have any tips or what is the best way you think uh, you can be given a handover when you come to help a crew or help with a transfer? Uh, it's a really good question, Stuart. I think, um, I think we like to make use of the expertise and the knowledge that's already on scene. Um, and so depending on where we are and uh, what's wrong with the casualty, we might well elect to see if the ambulance crew on scene, perhaps one of them, or maybe both of them, depending on what's wrong with the casualty, are able to come with us in a helicopter. Um, that completely minimises the amount of time that we need to take in terms of handover from clinician to, to clinician, uh, but also in terms of patient care it means they've got this constant that's been arrived at scene stabilized packaged and then transported uh, and delivered to a and e uh, you know for the handover i think i mean i've been involved in a few jobs where i've made use of the paramedics on scene or the technicians on scene 
um, and we've taken them with us and it's it's worked really well. Um, the only aspect I would say is that if you are, if we're thinking of how we're going to transfer somebody, um, particularly if they've been immobilized, um, what what you need to put them into in terms of either the split stretcher, um, you know, split orthopedic stretcher or a vacuum mattress uh, in order to transfer them in a helicopter, uh, that will speed things up immeasurably. Um, so if you've had the ability to already prepackage that patient, um, then it means it's a very swift uh, transfer because obviously trying to get all of our kit out uh, and do a transfer once we arrived on scene. And inevitably, when you get a helicopter anywhere near you, um, you know, it becomes really difficult to communicate. It's, they're so noisy. So before you arrive, consider this patient's probably definitely going to be going in the helicopter anyway. Yeah. So get them ready for that and have everything sheltered and protected that's not going so it doesn't blow away. Yeah, that's a great shout. Yeah, no, this, this is a really good point. I mean, we'll try to assess the scene. Um, and we've also got airwave on the aircraft. So we're able to do a point to point. Um, so we'll have, we'll have requested through UK Rescue and Ambulance Control um, the ISI number for your airwave handset. And we might well be trying to call the ISI number um, of the paramedic on scene um, so we can establish communication. So just for everyone, Airwave is the little handheld radios that police ambulance use and put you guys. So the ambulance will have an Airwave in it and each crew member should have their own Airwave radio and you can yep. speak to control or you can go on a talk, talk group where multiple groups are talking at the same time, relaying information. When you consider Scotland, you can be pretty much anywhere in Scotland in under an hour. Um, it realises, you realise how how unbelievably um not capable but but what unbelievable asset aviation is in scotland um so you can transfer a patient to the right hospital first time around for definitive care in under an hour from anywhere in scotland yeah when you talk about i've always thought ppci is just unbelievable and I can just imagine, I don't know what the figures are, but there must be hundreds of people who should just be dead, basically, who have had their heart attacks dealt with by the right person at the right time, taken to the right hospital, and then made a full recovery and then gotten on with their lives. Whereas before, before helicopters and fixed wing, I think living on the islands especially must have just been not a death sentence, but um, if you came, if you if you had a heart attack or a condition like that, then your chance of survival must have been minuscule compared to what they are just now. And recovery. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. I mean, we've had some great saves off the mountains, you know, exercise-induced MIs for fit, healthy people. Um, and they've literally started having their heart attack, you know, on the side of a mountain. Um, we've been airborne training, uh, got retasked, landed on, put the patient on board, quick 12 lead ECG, off to a cath level, PPCI, probably Aberdeen or Nine Wells or down to Glasgow. Um, and we've delivered them to, we deliver them to A&E normally, and they'll go straight through to the cath lab. Um, and those people, two, three, four stents later, uh, you know, a week later, they're walking out with no, um, no scarring on the heart at all. And you're just like, wow, in, in terms of, point of collapse in a really hostile remote area in Scotland being delivered to a state-of-the-art PPCI, you know, in under an hour is just, I mean, it's amazing, isn't it, really? Yeah. So if we look, if we go back a little bit towards the handover, so for any students listening, we would expect that you're going to do an atmos handover to a major trauma team, which... I mean, I've been a paramedic now for almost three years and I was a technician for five years before that. It's quite daunting having to do a handover, let alone a handover to upwards of maybe 15, 20 people. And they're all listening to you to for the information that you have on the patient and what you've done with them. And I think you said before, um, the I, what I find is quite important with the handover is just keeping it as brief as possible. But giving the pertinent information. So ATMA stands for age, time, mechanism of injury, injuries which you have seen or suspected, signs and symptoms. So that would be any observations out with normal parameters or um, 
things that have happened while you were on scene and then any treatments you've given. So just from my experience and what I find is very beneficial, I quite like to give a handover to my patient if they're conscious and able to listen. I'll tell them what I'm going to say and who I'm going to say it to. Usually when I tell them something, they can pick out any mistakes I've made. Um, if they're not conscious and not breathing, I'll sit and if I'm on my own, I'll say it to myself and I'll say it to myself just before I arrive. And if I've got someone with me, I'll say it to them and just say, have I missed anything? Is there anything else? And I've found doing that two or three times. By the time you've come into recess and there's 20 people staring at you, you've already practiced it once or twice. You've found any mistakes you've made and hopefully you're not going to say them again. That's a really good idea. And I've never... I don't think I've ever done that with my patients, but I will do in the future. I think that's a brilliant idea. And, and they might even add to it, you know, so you, you might, it might not be that you, you might have just missed something and, you know, they just say, oh, what about this? We know what about that. So, but I, I think in terms of students, I think less is more. Um, and, you know, what I, I often say is, is use the impact of, uh, you know, the insult, the, the timings, I think are really important. And uh, the mechanism is really important, particularly with a trauma patient. Um, so as soon as you've established that they've tumbled or fallen, you know, a significant distance, all of a sudden you realise that everybody in the room is now thinking to themselves, this is a high energy insult. Um, so we've got polytrauma here. You know, we, we, we don't know exactly what's wrong with them other than perhaps the distracting or obvious injuries. Um, and... Be as short as com and, and compact as possible, but then you're still in the room. So if they want to come and ask you questions or clarify something with you, they absolutely can. You know, your handover isn't, I'm not, I'm not talking anymore. Your handover is, I've delivered it to you, enough for you to get on with the patient. However, I'm over here. If you want to come and talk to me and ask me any other information, please do so. Yeah, and they usually do. They usually ask you something that you've said or something that you should yep. have said. And we're all guilty of it. And, and Sorry. I, we're all guilty of, you know, um, how many seconds do you actually concentrate on, on somebody talking to you for? No. Uh, 30 seconds max, I yeah. would say. Uh, another little tip is write down the patient's details on a separate piece of paper with their address, their date of birth and their CHI number and give that to someone because they're usually desperate. I've had people interrupt my handover to get details of the patient. So if you've done that before, and even better, if you're sending someone to the receptionist so the nurse doesn't have to phone the receptionist to then book the person in, you're skipping out one person who's having to phone someone. And when someone asks you if they're booked in yet, you can say you've done it already. And then that's one important thing that hasn't been done is done before you even get and, and the relevance of that is obviously that they're able to look at the patient's history, which is really relevant in some cases. Oh, ho, ho. That was very interesting indeed. Thanks for listening to Emergency Care in Scotland. Merry Christmas.